This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If the space is preserved, you have a, a very high chance of, you know, it being haunted. Most of the haunted places that I've been to have been like buildings that have been there for hundreds of years through the test of time. I'm Melissa, and I'm Hadley. We're two interior design editors obsessed with the paranormal. This Halloween, we're stepping away from the beautiful homes we usually write about to tell a different kind of story. From cursed cottages to abandoned estates, we're uncovering the twisted histories of America's most notorious homes. So lock your doors and leave the lights on. This is Dark House. (laughs) Hey, and welcome back to Dark House, episode four. If you're a new listener, my name is Hadley, and this is my co-host, Alyssa. We've been researching the most haunted houses across America and telling their backstories. And this week, it's my turn. So, Alyssa, you probably still haven't figured out which one I've picked. Or I don't want to discredit you. Maybe you have. But I'm going to give you one. Okay, then I'm going to give you one final clue. Hit me. So this house is straight out of one of my favorite literary genres, Southern Gothics. Do you have like a, a book example for me? Well, funny you say that because this is actually based on a book. Okay. So just think of that general region and think of a place maybe instead of a book. Oh, is it is it in New Orleans? Mm, no, but that's a really good guess. I'll just tell you which one I chose. It's called the Mercer Williams House and it's in Savannah, Georgia. Have you heard of it? I actually, it sounds really familiar. I feel like I must have seen it when I was looking for my houses. Probably. It's super famous. You may have heard of it from the book that it inspired, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrent. It's really about the city and then the man who lived in the Mercer house until 1990, Jim Williams. He was a local socialite, preservationist, and antiques dealer that died in the home, but he was also put on trial for a murder that happened in the house in 1981. So... The case was obviously really famous and sensationalized in all of the local papers at the time, but it was also even more famous once the book came out and it was published about like a decade after in 1994. Is this a movie? It sounds like Yes, yes. So the movie came out in 99, a few years after, and obviously Hollywood, as it does, like takes a ton of liberties with this kind of thing. But it was cool things about it, in my opinion, are that the actual house is used as like the set for for the movie. But before we get into the house and the infamous murder, I'm going to give you some background info of Savannah as a city itself. The city very much brands itself as, you know, the Southern Gothic tale manifested in a real place. They really do play up the whole romance of it and how beautiful and old-fashioned it is. So let's talk a little bit about the history. It is the oldest city in Georgia, and it's the first planned city in America because it had so much potential as a port. I'm talking like 1730s, so a long, long time ago. And it was designed on a grid with wide streets and a lot of different squares. And um, in like the early to mid-1700s, it was also a hub for pirates and buccaneers. And honestly, it looks pretty similar today. There's a lot of quaint cobblestone streets, and they're studded by those old-school iron lamps with huge 200-year-old trees draped in Spanish moss. So very romantic, but also eerie. And think about the climate there, too. You know, it's like heavy. So it's this perfect canvas for us to kind of feel nostalgic and, and project all this romance onto. And as a place that's steeped in so much history, like most southern cities in the U.S. in the late 1700s and early 1800s that had flourishing economies, all of that wealth was a result of atrocities like the removal of indigenous people and the slave trade. So you really can't go anywhere in the city without witnessing its beauty, but also simultaneously taking note of the exploitation and violence that it was built on. Well, literally built, though. It's like, how did you pay for the homes that you built? Mm -hmm, Exactly. I will say that today's house was never a plantation, but the original owner was a Confederate general. And a lot of these haunted houses and the most famous ghost stories in that region 
had something to do with the Confederacy or with the slave trade. And it's important to acknowledge that Mercer got rich in that way too, you know, which was at the expense of human beings. And I think it's important that when we talk about these like ghost stories, we don't just gloss over that element. Yeah. So, okay. During this time in Savannah around 1812, yellow fever was at an all-time high because mosquitoes that were being carried over in the ships from the transatlantic slave trade onto the Georgia shores. So to give you a sense of how bad it was, you would see bodies being dragged to the curb in the morning who had passed away in the night, and then they would be brought to an open pit or a mass grave because there just wasn't time to like go through the proper burial rites. And also, like I didn't know that much about yellow fever, but it's called yellow fever because of jaundice that it that it creates. And at the later that's when stages, your skin look it's like you look quite yellow, mm. hence yellow fever. But at the later stages too, it's like every, out of every pore and even just crying, your liquids are all blood. And so you'd see people with just bloody tears streaming down their face. It's the stuff that horror movies are made of. You know, and it's people sad can't see my face, but I wish they could. Like I, <laughs> I can't believe it's, what- it's so dark. And it's partly because of periods like this, most of Savannah is paved right on top of unmarked graves. You really cannot build anywhere in the city without building on top of some kind of ruin or corpse. Huh. According to local lore, the reason why the sidewalks are so uneven is because people are building on top of like these unmarked graves and and construction workers will actually like find remains to this day. So like right off the bat, you haven't even told me the story of this house yet, but I'm already just like, well. Yeah, exactly. Because we know that a common reason for hauntings is often if someone wasn't properly laid to rest. And so basically everyone who was put into these mass unmarked graves, all of their spirits could be restless, which could create like a really spooky energy across the city. Yeah, exactly. And so it's part of this reason why it's become a hub of dark tourism is because of all of these things. But as I mentioned, it's also partly thanks to that book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and all of the allure of Southern Gothics. So this is also thanks to Jim Williams, our main guy who we'll get to later because of all of his restoration work to preserve the city and, and allow it to have this sort of like historic charm. And so let's go into the house now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So 429 Bull Street is three stories and 7,000 square feet. It takes up an entire city block of Monterey Square, which is in the city's historic district neighborhood. And it's a short block away from the childhood home of the prolific Southern Gothic writer Flannery O'Connor. So, I mean, that detail kind of helped me see the types of environments that, you know, inspired some of the greats who ended up creating this genre. Do or at least like she wrote? Well, I was going to, I don't worry, I came with a name. You might not know it, but I feel like you'll at least appreciate the don't. name of it. It's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. So, oh, I know that one. You, oh, oh my God, good. that one's so <laughs> scary. I love and hate that one. Okay, well, good. Okay, back to the house. So it's an Italianate home with a lot of Renaissance and Greek revival elements. It was designed by a New York City-based architect, actually. His name was John S. Norris, and he was commissioned to design it for General Hugh Mercer. He's the guy I told you about earlier. Construction began in 1860, but it wasn't completed until 1868, and that interruption was caused by the Civil War. So Hugh Mercer and his family never even lived in the house. When I first heard that, I was like, what? Like, I, want, I was excited to get some history about the earlier years of the house, but they never even lived in it. And it's of standard practice in Savannah to give the house the name of the original family that, like, commissioned the build. Hmm. However, I'm, I also think that he happens to be a lot more famous. He has his own Wikipedia page. Go and learn about the eggnog riot there if you're interested. He is clearly an important figurehead in Savannah. So, Interesting. But also another guy actually was the one who ended up completing it. And he bought the house from Mercer in 1868. And that's when they moved in and completed the construction. His name is John R. Wilder. So it has these really grand 15-foot ceilings, really elaborate moldings, um, charming interior shutters. And this is my favorite part. There's this really cool interior dome, um, like skylight sort of, that's stained glass. And it's still there. Have you ever seen one of those old like Tiffany's stained glass windows? They're really pretty. And it's like shaded by these beautiful trees and it looks out onto the square. The facade has beautiful 
French windows open onto these really beautiful balconies with iron railings. I mean, every detail in the design of the house is like perfect because the person who restored it eventually was the best restorationist. Long story short, it's very majestic. But in the same way that all of the stuff we're talking about with these Southern Gothics is that somehow, even though it's gorgeous, something about it feels sinister to me. Maybe all the bodies it's built on. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe that's it. Anyway, let's get back to the Wilders. So they're the second owners, but the first occupants. And they are not nearly as traceable as the Mercers. And I did find some stuff, but I, I learned that John, the patriarch, was born in 1816, and then he died at some point in 1879. So he couldn't have lived in the house too long because they moved in in 1868. According to the Georgia Historical Society, which still houses like their family papers, and that includes things like random keepsakes and letters. And I couldn't read the letters between the family members online, but one of them was entitled Jones Sees a Ghost. That's an omen. Right? It's weird. I I don't know anything else about it, but that's strange. I wish I could know more, but maybe actually the mystery makes it creepier. Okay. Well, anyway, Mercer House is usually the last stop on most Savannah ghost tours because it's so beautiful. So is that like a save the best for last strategy? I feel like it probably is. Okay. Everyone thinks it's like the most beautiful one in Savannah and it's the most preserved because it's been brought back to life, you know, after many years that it was vacant and that that part of its history is super murky, which I just think adds to the layer of mystery that the house is shrouded in. So let me fast forward to the vacant years. Um, what years are the vacant years? So good question. I don't even know because they don't say when the Wilders moved out. That's kind of why I called out the fact that he must have only lived in the house for 10 years and it's not clear if the kids inherited it. Okay. Speaking of ghost tours, though, one of the legends they tell is that an occupant of the Mercer house in 1913, who may or may not have been a wilder, tripped over a balcony. And those injuries were minor. He did die a few days later. So that's the first notable and strange accident in the house. I'm already suspect of this house. But at some point during the Reconstruction era and during the early 20th century, the area changed drastically. So I'm guessing they left during that period of time when most people left that city center area. By the 1930s and 40s, a few buildings in the historic district were starting to be demolished, and there were fewer and fewer families living in the area, and it got a little dilapidated. Mm, ghost town. Yeah. And by the 50s, city officials wanted to bring it back to life by building freeways and parking lots and high-rises so that it would better compete with other commercial developments in the suburbs. But that would mean like tearing down all these buildings, right? So to prevent this, by 1955, seven prominent Georgia women created the historic Savannah Foundation, trying to make sure that these buildings were preserved. And so at some point during this like period, it was a religious gathering place. Okay, so that's going to draw some energy. Exactly. And at some point they moved someplace else. And if this was also a period where it was starting to be revived, maybe it got too expensive. Totally. Could have been a totally normal reason why they left, but the house is empty for some, at least a decade. Well, you also can't just leave a house vacant for even like a couple of weeks. I know, without dust gathering. Things can go wrong with the pipes and like you have, you have to turn things off and on. Exactly. When I wasn't in my apartment for a few months during the pandemic, I got a text from my friend who I allowed to stay in it for a month. And he was like, I think your cowboy boots are haunted because I keep hearing tap dancing. And that is not the first time I've been accused of tap dancing in the middle of the night, but that is neither here nor there. So where did you anyway. get the boots? Well, they're amazing. Oh, they are they're vintage. <laughs> they're vintage. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know what? I think you should give those away. No, they're my favorite boots. I'm not leaving them away. They're clearly uh-uh. haunted. I'm going to wear them next time we hang out. But anyway, the point was like when I came back, I was like, what does it look like in here? Because you're right. Leaving any home unattended for too long means that it's going to be taken over by nature. And if you have my luck, then ghosts will probably move in and do a jig in your boots too. Okay. So in the house, and this is in 1969, a little boy, he was 11 years old and his name was Tommy Downs, wandered into the house. He was not alone. He was with two friends. And as he was exploring the house, he ended up on the roof. He and his friend had been on a pigeon chasing hunt. Who does that? I know. One of my many phobias is of pigeons. They're like, I don't like the way they flutter and I'm not afraid of them, but let me tell you the amount of times in New York that I've like been so embarrassed because a pigeon will fly at me and I'll like jump, duck, whatever. And I'm like, I hope nobody just saw that. Or cross the street. Yeah, I know. Same. Anyway, and this is really sad. He slipped and he fell on two iron spikes that were adorning the balcony railings. 
no. Like folded over them kind of, I think. And so the paramedics came and they removed the two spikes that had impaled him, but they couldn't save him. The two spikes on that balcony are still missing to this day. That's really sad in such a dark picture. I know. Like he was just there playing. I don't know if you've seen the movie now and then, but the idea of like kids being scared of the neighborhood house and just going to explore it for fun. But anyway, these two spikes are still missing. And I find that strange because, I mean, I don't know if Jim Williams was a huge history buff, maybe he wanted to keep that part of its history alive. That's gross though. Like I think you can keep the history alive by getting like replica iron rods or whatever to replace the ones that are missing. Yeah, I know. No disrespect. Don't don't come help me, please. <laughs> um, but also, like, the kid said that the way he fell kind of looked as if he was, like, almost pushed. I do think your body can react in weird ways when you slip, but that's just one of the haunting things that stuck with me. So, like, i.e. pushed by a spirit. Exactly. So, okay, within the same year, I guess 69 was a big year, and it was for our story well, last week, too. yeah. <laughs> so... The Mercer House gets its next and most prominent owner, Jim Williams. He buys the home that year for $55,000. I thought it would have been more, but I guess if it was left vacant for 10 years, all the pipes are probably busted. So maybe he got a bargain. There was a lot of work that had to be done for sure. So I'm going to give you a little bit of information about who Williams is. Okay. He was born in Gordon, Georgia on December 11th, 1930. And there's very little known about his childhood. The stuff that's published online is like skips immediately to his like early adulthood in Savannah. So by the time it's 1955 and he's 24, he bought and restored his first three buildings in Savannah. Um, And remember how I told you that during this time there was a huge push to revive the historic district? Yes. So they tried to bring in wealth and that revival by convincing quote unquote bachelors. That was a euphemism for gay men and artists. So this approach did work because by the late 50s, Savannah was well-preserved And Jim was making more and more money buying, reviving, and selling these beautiful places. But at some point, Jim gets appointed as the president of the Savannah Historical Society. So That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, And at the same time, he's also like an incredible interior decorator, an antique dealer who you would travel the globe collecting these incredible pieces, which I'll tell you more about in like two seconds, and then a restorationist. Okay. And from what I read, Williams believed in ghosts because while he was restoring a nearby house called the Hampton Lilybridge House, he hired a priest to do an exorcism. So he was apparently convinced that it was haunted because people would hear disembodied footsteps and loud crashes and, you know, classic haunting things of that nature without anybody being there. And he couldn't even get any carpenters to do the work on it. Wow. I wonder if he himself heard anything. Yeah. I mean, if he hired a priest to do an exorcism, that tells me that he probably saw something himself or was creeped out enough to do it. And that makes me wonder, do you think people who see ghosts are more likely to come back as ghosts themselves? Actually, don't answer that. Let's go back to Jim while he was alive for now. Okay. So he was 39 when he bought the Mercer house. Um, And at that point, he was a local socialite. It took him about two years to fix the house and bring it back to its former glory. That's kind of fast. It's pretty fast. I mean, he was a full-time restorationist and he had an entire team of people who would help him. Um, But to give you a sense of how gorgeous it was, it was on the cover of a prominent design magazine in 1976. So it wasn't just like some people in the town thought it was cute. It was like regarded internationally as this amazing, like, you know, Well, when you were like telling me about him, I was like, we definitely would have worked with him and like covered his project. Oh, totally. Some of the antiques that I think have a lot of potential for being haunted. I'm just going to give you the skinny on a few of them. In the drawing room, he had what he liked to call his assortment of curiosities. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that he put in it was um, a presentation casket that had the imperial coat of arms and a gold-crowned cipher of Tsar Nicholas II. And then there's also this thing that's resting on an easel like that is a piece from the state carriage that was used at the coronation of Napoleon. Farquaad. Um, yeah, Farquaad is like probably inspired by him. There's also like a four, an amazing four poster bed that's just casually in the guest room for whoever sleeps over and that's worth $10,000. They had crystal candlesticks in, that they still use that were a gift from Martha Washington 
aka George Washington's wife. And then also there's famously an organ installed in the house. You know, that creepy funeral sound. I was going to say, like, you don't just have an organ without being really, like, scary. Yeah, like, this is kind of what I was saying with, like, him buying into the whole Southern Gothic, like, narrative. And can I just say, he looks so much like William Faulkner. I cannot be the first person to, like, connect those dots either. Well, first of all, where did he get all this stuff? He collected it. He would travel around the world and, and, you know, like try to find these old antiques. He would go on buying trips, which is going to come up in a second. So he spent like $10,000 on the crystal candlesticks. Well, he was wealthy. So he, he could like, instead of buying the like Birkin, he's doing that for candlesticks. Um, and so here's my absolute favorite. He has the dagger that he claimed was used to castrate Rasputin. So the Romanovs, the last fam- royal family of Russia who were all executed, he was their weird monk who like, I don't want to get too pervy, but like, just look him up. But basically, I don't think it's true that it was used to castrate him because like apparently during his autopsy, his testicles were in, intact. Not again. Not with the I autopsy. Know, I know. And the fact that there's like a sword that was anywhere near him, I wouldn't even go in on the same city block is something. Wait, why he is he like? He's really creepy. Okay. So enough about Rasputin. Let's go to 12 years later, That now that he's been in the house for a while, and we're in 1981, okay? Do you follow? Do I need to backtrack? Year of the murder. Yes, year of the okay. murder. So this is when Jim has started to spend a lot of time with the 21-year-old Danny Hansford. Hansford was born in 1960, and his parents were super young when they had him. Um, and the year after he was born, his parents divorced. And then a year after that, his dad then died by suicide. His childhood was sort of uh, like a revolving door of different houses and issues from that point on. So he was in an orphanage by the time he was 11. And then soon after that, he was put in another group home. And it kind of just went back and forth where like the authorities would think he needed to be somewhere else. What I'm just trying to say is this kid was really vulnerable and definitely could have used some support that he didn't have. At 21, he starts dating a woman named Debbie. And during this time period, he was also working as a male sex worker. It's how he and his friends say he met Jim Williams, because Jim would then solicit him and pay him for sex. Jim, however, says that he came to the house looking for work that was of the nature of, like, restorations, because he has his basement. It is also sort of his office. And then Jim hired him to do some odd jobs around the house. Um, But again, this narrative really just depends on who you ask. Jim told his friends that he really wanted to help Danny because he was sort of troubled and he wanted to give him the opportunity to learn about this like skill and Yeah, I mean it's clearly profitable. So Yeah, but Danny's friends say that the relationship was from the get sexual by nature. Um, whether or not he also did odd jobs around the house. And by March of nineteen eighty one, Danny was basically living with Jim at the house. So I was gonna ask, like, were they strictly like hooking up or did they, was there like a connection? Well, I think it's kind of complicated because every relationship, one person's story about how they feel about someone could be really different from the other person's. Well, if we're going to talk about like power dynamic here, like you said, um, Jim is about 30 years older than Danny. He has the money. So it makes sense for, for Danny, the vulnerable, troubled, um, young man to have more eggs in the basket than yeah. Jim might. Yeah. But obviously it seems like really unclear about the truth yeah. of the relationship. Totally. So it's pretty clear that Danny is living in the house and not just as like a roommate or a coworker. By May 2nd, Danny was found dead. In the house? Yes. So we don't wow. know what exactly happened between them that night because there's a lot of conflicting stories and, and it changes over time. But I'll explain the evidence and the theories um, and tell you a little bit about what was happening the night before, which was May 1st. Okay. It was clear that the two had spent a lot of time together. That night, according to Jim, they went to a drive-in movie. And when they got home, again, according to Jim, Danny had smoked nine joints and then (gasps) drank, which is like, that's a lot. Are you sure? That sounds like someone who doesn't smoke would say that. I'm like, that's how he died. (laughs) I know. Um, And then drank half a bottle of whiskey. And oh my um, God. that wasn't something that was super alarming to Jim because apparently that was like child's play compared to a lot of the pills that he had been consuming. Like apparently he was playing video games that night after they got home. And again, Jim's story changed several times. So it's really not clear who and how and whatever, all of those details of the fight. 
But the version that I believe is because there was a kind like a semi witness. Um, basically, Jim had told Danny that he was going to bring another friend on a trip to Europe to buy antiques. So his friend named Goodman um, gets a phone call and he says it's around 2 a.m. And it's Jim on the phone who tells him the news. And then he hears Danny on the phone say that there's no hard feelings or anything. But then a few minutes later, Jim calls again and he said, come over because I had to shoot Danny. (gasps) Basically on the night of May 2nd. And at this point it's morning because it's 2.58 a.m. According to court documents, that's when Jim called 911. And he stated that there had been a shooting. Well, what's so weird is like you painted this picture for me of like Savannah and it's historic and it's charming. I literally like this whole time I've been thinking we're still in the 1800s and you were like, he's playing video games. I was like, oh yeah, 81. Yeah. It's like what Jerry was saying though about like the lamp that doesn't fit. Like the video Uh games don't fit in this house. Um, Except for it's not props. This is real life. Sounds like any game of Clue or a weird murder mystery setting. It always makes me think of that episode in The Office. But anyway... It's pretty clear that he waited 30 minutes between the shooting and calling emergency responders. And to give him the benefit of the doubt, they're like, I don't know how I would react in in this situation if I were scared or if it were traumatizing and I didn't want to, but it was self-defense. But it is notable to the investigators. Yeah, that's plenty of time to die. So Danny was lying face down and he had a pistol in his right hand. He'd been shot in three places, the chest, the ear, and the back. And that's the one to me that's the most... How could that be self-defense? So his head was facing to his left, which they took note of because apparently it was like facing away from the weapon. And it kind of looked like because of where his hand was that he would have been reaching for the weapon that he couldn't really see, which I don't think that proves anything, honestly, but I do see why they pointed it out as strange. Well, when you told me, I was thinking that somebody put the weapon in his hand to look like, oh, well, he was armed and dangerous. Exactly. And then there was also a chair leg like over his pants. How could he have been like pinned down there unless it were after when someone was like rearranging stuff? How weird. As for what actually happened, there are two popular storylines. So I'll start with the one that frames it as self-defense and is more pro-gym. Word for word in a tour that I listened to, who for a guy who actually works at the Mercer house, he was the tour guide, but he moonlights as a ghost tour guide, said, Jim has a very troubled employee. He has just been kicked out of his mother's home and was super rebellious, and Jim took him under his wing as an apprentice for antique restorations. Danny had a rap sheet a mile long, so Jim took a major risk, knowing his patchy past. He showed up one morning stinking drunk, demanding Jim give him cash, so he fired a shot. Um, shooting somebody for asking for money is not... I know. Uh, and it's also unclear, like, the prepositions he used when he was telling it. Wait, like, who fired the shot? It's leaning on... All of the negative things about his, like, you know, reputation. And not the actual evidence, exactly. The other theory is, like, a lover's quarrel and that Danny maybe wasn't the first person to shoot. But the thing is, it's not a question of whether or not Jim did it. It's more a matter of establishing why he did it and under what circumstances. And that's really what the trial was all about. Did they check who both guns were registered to? They were antique pistols, but they were loaded. So when I'm thinking about like... Of course they were antique pistols. Of course, right? Well, yeah, I was going to say that raises a question of like, what's the difference between buying a gun and buying an antique gun? Because you have to register a gun, but if it's an antique, is it like, no, 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 this is just decoration. But let's go to the trial now. Jim Williams was the only man in Georgia history to be tried for the same crime four times. So there were four That's crazy. Yeah. So in the first trial, it didn't also help that like Danny also wasn't an angel by any means. He had a temper and like, um, you know, like wasn't always like nice to Jim either. Ultimately, Jim was convicted of murder and of staging the scene. Somehow he posted $200,000 worth of bail so that he was able to appeal it. And during that time period, he wasn't actually in prison. So he got to live back in the Mercer house during this. So like, like house arrest kind of? Kind of, but it's like, what? You were just convicted of murder. It just sounds like, hey, that's sounds not the like point. like corruption to me. Yeah, and if it wasn't this really like rich white guy, would he be able to do that? I highly doubt it. Hell no. So and that brings me to the second trial. During this time, Williams hired like a more robust defense team, but he also actually hired a root doctor, a woman from the neighboring state, South Carolina, named Valerie Fennell Aiken Bowles. And in the book... She's known as Lady Minerva. Okay, so Lady Minerva is the book character. Yes, and I want to call her Valerie just because I feel like I want to call her her real name. Yeah, totally. She was a known healer, and Williams wanted her to quote-unquote work her magic. 
And in a lot of the mainstream entertainment and ghost tours and things of that sort, they call her a voodoo healer. And I just want to clarify what, what voodoo really is. So it really depends on the region. But Valerie practiced a West African spiritual tradition as a root doctor. This is really common in South Carolina and in Savannah. And it's a result of African origin people who were then enslaved in these regions, mixing some of their folk beliefs with the mainstream Christian values that were enforced upon them. So, And it's reliant on like using a lot of like herbs and natural elements, yeah, a lot right? of it a root is, doctor. Yes. Most of it is about healing. And the other really cool thing, I mean, I think the most poetic thing about the book is the title. But she should get credit for that because she's the one who calls graveyards the gardens of good and evil. Extra creepy. Yeah. It's really cool, though, that like this beautiful kind of like language to describe something that we just are like, it's a graveyard. And Well, I like the garden connotation. It's the good and evil that I'm like, oh, no. So, well, because it's just the same way that humans can also be good and evil. The same thing is true for those who have passed on. She called it that because midnight was known as dead time and it was separated into two intervals, healing magic time from 1130 to 12 and then protection magic time from 12 to 1230. She and Jim would go to the cemetery and visit her husband, another well-known root doctor, Dr. Buzzard, to go to his grave and they would do rituals there during dead time. One of them involved gathering some soil from the grave site and it's known as gopher dust, which I sort of think of as fairy dust. But what they would do is they would use the dust to sprinkle it someplace where your enemy was going to walk so that they would be haunted or cursed or hexed or whatever you want to call it by whoever was buried under that dirt. It's really defense and protection, which is what he needed defense during his second trial, right? Is he hoping that she'll help him win the trial or is he like being haunted by Danny and he's freaking out? It's unclear. Like maybe it's both. Okay. He, it sounds to me that if he went to seek help from Valerie, that like he did believe in some form of whether or not it was the afterlife or he felt guilty and wanted to like atone for that. But also like what I was thinking when we were talking about the first trial, how he paid 200000 to go back to his house. But like imagine living in the house after you like killed your lover there. I know. Like you'd get, I mean, I'd have nightmares. I'm torn between like, did he hire her because he thought she could help him win the case somehow? But I feel like no, because like why they're doing defense magic against his ghost. What's his ghost going to come possess the jury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically like the the ghost tours that are local in Savannah always say that she would sprinkle the gopher dust um, where the prosecutor would like stand and sit. But he was still found guilty the second time and he was given a life sentence. He had ended up serving like two years. And by that second year, like he, a lot of contradictory evidence came out and there were key investigators that they discovered were likely lying on the stand and were tampering with evidence, but it led to the third trial. This one pretty quickly ended in a mistrial. The judge just dismissed it and was like, no, because that jury pool is tainted if it's been everywhere. The book hadn't been written yet, but it was still like, you know, all over the place in terms of like the newspapers and and people knew who he was. He was a famous person in the town. So this brings me to the fourth trial. Finally, at this point, they were like, okay, let's change venues. So this one took place in Augusta, Georgia. And Valerie was still there at all of the trial proceedings. Um, She was continuing her practices and showing support. At this case, he was found not guilty of murder. And it was ruled homicide in self-defense in under 45 minutes of deliberation. So that's kind of a drastic change. And there were new findings within the evidence that helped build the defense's case a bit more. Um, At this point, you know, Williams had publicly acknowledged that they had had a sexual relationship. They could no longer really use that against him to vilify him and be like, you won't admit it. Also, it was in a different place and he had this like really expensive defense team. So obviously he's really happy and relieved and he gets to go home to our lovely Mercer house. But... Valerie was apparently insistent that there was still some cleansing that needed to be done due to Danny's spirit being restless. Valerie like also told Jim that he must commune with the dead to understand the living. That's so interesting. And I want to acknowledge like Jim was obviously dragged through hell during this time too. And the difference is that he still had his life and a voice at court and his millions of dollars while Danny didn't have any of that. And so Valerie was like, whatever happened between you two, you still just have to acknowledge him and just talk to him and kind of make amends so that he can pass on and that you can then rest. Mm -hmm. Danny is 
going to drag you to the grave with him is what Valerie says. And Jim still is like, hell no, I'm done. I don't know. Maybe he was just sick of it and wants to move on. The other side of the story is that Valerie was so persistent with him because he wasn't honoring their payment agreement. But she was also a very private person. And so that's another reason why it's like not that many people actually know the full truth. But then about eight months after he was acquitted on January 4th, 1990, right before his 60th birthday, Jim passed away in the doorway of the same room that Danny was killed in. So he was pretty young. And it was also a full day later that an employee even found him. That is crazy. Um, and, And the cause of death was... They showed three reasons. One was unknown, which is like, okay, that's helpful. What? The other one, I know. And then the other one is congestive heart failure. And the other one is pneumonia. And it's sad that he was alone when he died too. Because, I mean, I imagine this big house. At one point, it was like the space of these amazing, lively parties. Let's say like, it's totally possible it was self-defense. And then that's horrible that this person like finally gets their freedom and then they can't actually enjoy the rest of their life for much longer than a few months. But anyway, apparently a few days after, Valerie was seen outside the house doing something, and she never told anybody what. Some people say she was cleansing it. Um, And then some people who believe the side that maybe he hadn't paid her properly, that she was doing something else. She's coming to take the candlesticks. Yeah. She was like, I know where Martha's goods are. Different Martha from two weeks ago. Anyway... Back at the house, a prominent attorney based in Atlanta who was on the defense team, he was quoted saying that they spent a lot of time in Jim's house and that it was somewhat museum-like even then. The house now is a museum and the current owner is his sister, Dorothy. Beyond that family tie, it's also a natural fit for her to run the museum because she actually has a history master's and a sociology PhD. She clearly is you know, well-equipped to turn this home into a place that could actually be a local history museum. But apparently when you're on the tours, they really don't like you to talk about any of the paranormal activity at all. And obviously to prefer to avoid talking about the trials. That seems a little contradictory to like what you were telling me about how they sort of like lean into the spookiness of the whole city. Totally. part of their brand. Well, maybe this family doesn't, but the city does because of all of the money the tourism drives to it. Right. I mean, I read this review online where they said that they were asking too many questions about the sordid history. One of the tour guides was actually like, this is strictly an architectural tour. And the guy was like, oh, sorry, okay. I mean, it makes sense too. I don't know. I can imagine as a family member, you would not want to focus on that just because it's the grief and the mourning process doesn't necessarily allow for you to be like, my brother, the friendly ghost down the hall, you know, I wouldn't want to think of my sister that way if this happened to her. So I I get that totally. Um, But I also just find it interesting that there's such a hard line. Ghost tours stop at this house. You said they save it for last. What are like some of the things that they, that people are like, what are they saying on the tour? Well, a few years after Williams died, people reported hearing lively music and seeing his house all lit up around Christmas. And he used to throw those massive holiday parties. So that's pretty weird. And also there would be no parties in the area when this activity was observed. And when there were noise complaints made, they'd show up and there was like, hey, I don't know where you heard that. Sorry. That's so weird. Maybe the museum curator manager is like on a night shift and playing the organ to keep busy. Um, Probably not, though. Uh, And then he's also been seen wandering around a lot of his properties that he used to preserve. And I find that very believable, especially considering the fact that one of them was likely haunted. People on the tours see mostly Tommy Downs. They report like a young boy standing on the roof or on the balcony. And I don't think this is necessarily true in this case. It's just a concept I'm like fascinated with. I think one of the main reasons that little kid ghosts are so creepy. And we talked about this with Velisca too, is that the legends about this are that like demons or some other sort of evil spirit uses a child or a pet or some other sort of innocent looking being as a foil to lure them into the place so that they can project whatever it is that they want to project onto them. That's why I think like I get creeped out when I imagine him. Otherwise, I just think of like, that's really sad. And quite frankly, I hope that his spirit isn't lingering there. And I hope that he has like found some sort of peace. Me too. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think because it's owned by the family, there aren't that many stories of like Jim's ghost walking around. Wow. That is the story of the Mercer Williams house. Parts that really, you know, stand out to me with both the idea of Savannah as a place in general, and then also the specific house, the place is so defined by the physical surroundings of, you know, the dripping Spanish moss and like the, the swampy kind of climate, everything is just built on top of a ruin. Um, 
I find that to be the perfect setting for a haunting. Even by the time you got to the end and you're like, and he dies in 1990, I still had gone back to thinking like, there yeah. just seems to be no concept of time mm-hmm. in the way that you've described this area that's just so eerie and like, Obviously, we have an appreciation for antiques. Like, Mm -hmm. we know the value. We know how cool it is when you can take an old loved item, refurbish it, and then give it like a brand new life in your home. Yeah. I also just feel like there's this other side of antiques where it's like, it's one thing to have something passed down from a family member Mm -hmm. and like it's kind of cherished and that's really cool. But when it leaves the original owner and then it's becoming passed around, it's like gathering all these other stories and gathering all this other energy. Well, there are these objects that are like imprinted with it so that they could carry that like residual energy somewhere else, you know? I feel like sometimes when people say energy, it sounds like hippie woo-woo. But even if you think about like now in the day of washing our hands every two seconds to the point of like the driest hands on the planet, like if I touch something, those like germs and particles stay there. Like when do they disappear? Oh, also like, I don't know if you're a Faulkner fan, but speaking of Southern Gothics, he has this quote where he's like, nothing happens once and is finished. So this idea that the legacy of something, like, once it happens, it never goes away physically and, like, energy-wise, Well, we talked about that, too, with just these houses in general. It's like, it only takes one incident one night. One little thing can redefine everything, even just the way that you described how the city's laid out. Like, it's such a juxtaposition, and it's impossible to look at the beauty and not... If you think of the moss as like a veil even and you have to peel back the layers to be able to like see that there's some ugly stuff behind all of that romance. Well, we were talking about how like Hollywood is haunted by its stories. Like so is... It's the same everywhere. Everywhere is. Just like history is important and that's why getting the story right is important. I wanted to bring somebody on as our guest who is from Georgia and better yet, their first paranormal experience was in Savannah. So... Oh, wow. I don't know if they've actually been to the Mercer house or not, but it doesn't really matter because the whole city is like full of these amazing right. stories. So I'm going to tell you who's today's guest is, yeah, unless you want to take a guest. Okay. No, no, I don't even want to guess. Just tell yeah, me. Yeah. Okay. So today's guest is Ghost Brothers star Marcus Harvey. Oh my God. Wait, I love that show. I was literally just watching an interview with them. He and his best friends and his co-stars, Dalen Spratt and Jawan Mass travel across the U.S. investigating the most haunted locations in the country. And during one season called Haunted House Guest, they were actually sleeping in the real homes that people have reported hauntings. And most of their major cases originally were in the American South. And not to mention, too, these guys are really like pioneers in their industry. They really like, you know, wanted to encourage more representation of people of color within that space um, that has historically been pretty whitewashed. So another thing, too, that I'm really excited to bring to this episode is he's hilarious. His when he's not doing his work on the Ghost Brothers. He is a comedian. And I think Marcus in particular does a really, really good job on Ghost Brothers of like just bringing this level of levity to it. I can't believe you got him. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to him. Let's do it. Hi, thank you so much for getting on the phone with us today. So let's just jump right in with your first paranormal experience. Can you tell us a little bit about how that affected you? So I uh, went on a uh, our first like excursion, which was like a little sizzle reel pilot thing that we did where we went to the Sorellis Weed House in um, Savannah, Georgia. And that was my first experience with any paranormal thing. Wow. You know, I was a church boy. So, you know, I'm a church kid. So, you know, I believe in the Holy Ghost. But all them other ghosts, I ain't, I ain't really playing with them. Ghosts, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, no, it was just amazing to, you know, be able to be interested in something else that was beside, you know, just, you know, cutting hair and doing comedy. You know, you're going to have an end. So you might as well make a story while you're here. You know what I'm saying? But there's going to be an yeah. end to your story sooner or later. So you might as well put as much as you possibly can. So dealing with the paranormal has actually made me appreciate living a lot more than than I actually was before. So. Can you elaborate on that? I feel like that's like a really strong point to make, but would love to hear about how that's kind of just affected you. So, yeah. um, So with us, you know, we've had multiple cases and all the cases we have to get backstory. So as you continuously dive into somebody's backstory, you start seeing the similarities in you and them, the same hopes, dreams that they might have had, you know, happened to them. Some were entrepreneurs, some were, you know, just lovers, some were 
you know, husband and wife somewhere, you know, it's just a lot of different combinations of stories that I've heard. And I just always would just see like, why would somebody still be there? You know what I'm saying? Why would just your spirit or some type of energy of you still be there? Like, what is it that you, that you're wanting? So it made me just always be like, man, regardless if I become a ghost, uh, I want my story to be just as interesting that I'm here. You know, that's just, I think that that's really what's made me think about it life a lot more, you know, what kind of impact do I want to leave? Totally. And I feel like that's an interesting point too, about humanizing ghosts. That seems sort of like a paradox. Like how do you humanize something that's no longer really a human, but it is, it was, uh, it's a spirit and that is what makes us human. Right. Yeah. And ghosts are people too. Yeah. And it's funny, like, it's like, uh, you just, you just start seeing it like, dang, man, like us having to be at graveyards, things of that nature, like, dang, this person was living. Um, so kind of related to that, you mentioned doing a lot of research, finding, you know, primary documents, going to courthouses and digging up some of those records to piece those stories together. What were some of the more like shocking finds that helped you realize why there was a haunting occurring in a house? Hmm. Uh, it's always, I think always the ones that like stood out the most were ones that had a lot of love as well as anguish combined. Mm-hmm. So heartbreak is typically a lot of the big hauntings that I've seen. So bad relationships felt very top. I think toxic, <laughs> it's like toxic relationships. <laughs> yeah. ghosts. That is a lesson to take. It's always some type of like, Ah, it could have, it could have been. That's actually relevant to the story Hadley was just telling me about the Mercer Williams house. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask, like, maybe it was an even balance, but do you feel more responsible to help the homeowners or the ghosts? You almost had like double responsibility. Yeah, we always were trying to make sure that they were taken care of, both parties, not only, you know, the spirit, but also you know, the person who stays there, the resident. So it definitely made us be a lot more sensitive. It almost is kind of like, you know, when you find out like um, how certain things are made, like certain foods are made and you're like, oh, I wish I would have never seen that. <laughs> now it's like, <laughs> now it's like I walk into everybody's house and I'm like, man, your house could be haunted too. Dang, I wish I would have never known about haunted house guests. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's huge though. I feel like this is something that like not enough people talk about. I'm not trying to like scare everybody out of their homes. Some people are more sensitive to spirits and energies than others. And so like they might know that a certain space, home, whatever, has stuff going on while another person who's just kind of like never really opened their eyes or mind to it could be in there completely unsuspecting. And so I feel like there just are so many more places where spirits are around. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I feel like that. I feel like uh, any place you go into, if you just feel the energy, you tap into the energy, you can feel what's what's there. Some people might call it the energy. Some people might call it, you know, spirits. I mean, people might call it a lot of different things. It's just we have no title that can be accurate for everybody because everybody thinks of some some different way. You know what I'm saying? So, like, when you walk into a church, right, you know, like I said before, I always make it as a joke, but it's true. You walk into a church, no matter what church, you feel a different... A hundred percent. ...atmosphere. You know what I'm saying? You walk into a, 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 um, a cemetery... You feel a different atmosphere. You walk into an abandoned asylum, you feel a different spirit. You feel, you know, you walk into a house, you feel something different. I think we're kind of like to the point to where like, hey man, I got to go through my Instagram feed. I ain't got time to feel any of these spirits in this house. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> Can you yeah. tell us a little bit, speaking about apps, um, the app that you use to scan frequencies? Yeah, we, so we use the spirit box to do like EVPs uh, to kind of get like... Uh, to see what's in the room, you know what I'm saying? And then there's another one that actually kind of gives you words. So like as you're as you're speaking, asking questions, it would like regurgitate certain words. Do you ever get you know, scared just, when you're using them? Like have you do you yeah. have any stories about like <laughs> Do you get scared? Come on now. I like, yes. man, listen. You can't fight no ghosts. I'm I'm just saying, you know, we can't fight no ghosts. So I practice safe investigating. I put holy water on me, I wrap myself in saran wrap. You know, I just stay, I stay safe. From head to toe? Listen, safe ghosting is what I call it. I like to call it, let's talk about safe ghosting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what it is. But no, for real, uh, we pray before we do this. We pray before we do um, any investigations. And no, I have not brought anything home. So I got two kids. 
you know, a wife and, you know, I just want to make sure that I don't want, I don't want to have anything tormenting our house, you know, and then with me having that experience with hunted house kids, I see how real that can get, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. how you can literally have things in your house that you do not have any explanation to. You can't stop it. You can't pay it off. You can't move. But I wouldn't want to live in no haunted house because they ain't going to pay no bills, you know, but yeah. they'll run my, my light bill up. Flicking it off and on. Yes, they probably would. And then, you, um, and then they always going to ghost you when you ask for rent. Oh, my bad. I was back in heaven trying to get it saved up for you, man. I was just visiting. It's funny to think of them as roommates. Um transitioning to the house we talked about in this episode called the Mercer Williams house and it's in Savannah, Georgia. And you said that the first paranormal experience that you had was in Savannah. So can you tell me a little bit about what the energy of that city is like, what your Mm. experiences are like in that city? That's their Bahamas. Savannah is like the, (laughs) is like the, is like, oh girl, we went down to Savannah and we had a good time scaring people who were alive, talking to them. I touched somebody's elbow. You touched somebody's elbow, girl? I sure did. <laughs> like, like, that might be them paying excursions, but Savannah is definitely that. You could definitely feel like it's two cities. Savannah does feel like it's two cities. Like, there's a a, a, a city that we live in, and then there's a city that they live in. That's that crazy might be to think about. On top of each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you might be bumping into somebody. And like, oh, okay, what's up? What's up? You know what I'm saying? Do you think like, that's, that's because how... of the history of the place? Yeah, very yeah, very much so. It's a port town, so you got water all the way. You got what was being imported at that time, you know, you know, like torment. That's you know, tormented spirits and things of that nature. Uh, you have all the war, you know, the civil war stuff that was going on there. You know, you just have a lot of different things that just kind of like were very turning, like very big turning points in history, as well as those that city being so involved in what was going on in the in that time. That there was even things going on in that city that was like even an undercurrent from not necessarily just the nation, but just like what was happening, just day-to-day people. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? I think that those, it's just really things that are being preserved. You know, if the, if the space is preserved, you have a, a very high, a high uh, chance of, you know, it being haunted. I mean, you know, even if you think about how their city looks, it's still kind of like a lot of historic stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, in most of these cities and like what I've noticed, most of the hunted, that, hunted places that I've been to have been like buildings that have been there for hundreds of years through the test of time, just remodeled over and over and over again, you know, or there's something traumatic. So it's like always those type of like New Orleans is another one, mm-hmm. you know, New Orleans having the flooding as well as having their graves. You know, it's just a lot that goes into those type of cities. And that's that's what I that's what Savannah is like. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's interesting to me when I read about this stuff is that they sort of skip over what that actually means. And so Mm -hmm. one, if you're preserving these spaces, but then not addressing the atrocities that sort of like propped up that wealth and made that wealth, which was like brutality and racism and just now turning it into a museum that people don't, you know, necessarily, I mean, not all of them are like that. Some of them do um, kind of, you know, explore more than just the mainstream history you'd find in a textbook. We've done a lot of investigations in Savannah, all those like different houses. Like it's crazy. Cause like you said, they do duck a lot of that uh, racism, you know what I'm saying? And they do duck a lot of, around how they made that wealth and why that, that they weren't able to live in peace. You know, you can have wealth, but you still can't live in peace. You know what I'm saying? And you can't even rest in peace. Cause if you knew that you were causing so much, you know, t- you know, Torment off of a do- for a dollar. I can see why you hunt in places. You know what I'm saying? You guys are kind of pioneers in terms of on-screen representation. Have you felt the impact of being the first Black paranormal investigative team to have their own show? Um, I think that we haven't even really been able to be known that what we're doing in my community. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that it, it hit harder that, you know, three Black dudes was, you know, hunting ghosts in, it, for white people more than it was for Black people. You know, the black folks is like, uh, y'all, why y'all hunting ghosts? And then they're watching they're like, oh, snap, this is kind of interesting. And I, and then I'll come back to me like, hey, man, every time I go into the basement of my auntie's house, I smell these like Newports. I know that's my Uncle Johnny. You know what I'm saying? Like stuff yeah. like that. Like, so you just start seeing people like being a lot more comfortable when they can see themselves on TV. You know what I'm saying? And, and represented on TV. So. I would definitely say that I we do get a lot of different energy from different spirits. So like there'd be other energy like 
uh, other investigators, I wouldn't say they come from a privilege point. It's not on purpose. It's just a different experience. So, you know, um, the way that they approach uh, maybe a spirit or entity might be different than the way I approach a spirit or entity. They might approach it in a bold manner. I might, you know, approach it in a respectful manner. I might approach it in a bold manner on another another situation where they would come out in, you know, in a very more meek type of situation. So I think it just ranges, man. You know, um, it did feel like we were welcomed when we were on the plantation. It was like whatever spirits were there of um, the, the enslaved, our, my enslaved people was more so like a sense of like pride or coming back more so than any type of like, like, uh, you know, what you doing here? It was more of like a, we see you, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. when I went, when we go into the overseer's house, you can just feel a totally different energy. Like I see you too. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it was a different type of, we see you like who, who told you to be, get to this level, you know? Mm. And then to be totally honest, we had, we had a whole bunch of white people working for us. While we were, you know, we were getting in this uh, situation. So it was just kind of a different dynamic, a different energy bringing on to that plantation. You know what I'm saying? So, Man, I, I just implore everybody, like, hey, man, like that is an experience that you that actually might be necessary and needed. I'm not saying that you just go to a plantation to go to a plantation, but like to see like how powerful my people are, like that we can come from something like that and still flourish and still always be on, on, on you know, creating such dopeness, you know what I'm saying, for the world to kind of like, you know, be a part of. So I, I think that, that we even bring that to the um, investigation space when it comes to you know, us being ghost hunters, like we, we do it with flair. We do it with energy. We do it with, you know, um, empathy. We do it with, you know, care, concern, you know, and it's just like you, you, we get evidence as a result of it. I think it kind of ties back to what you were saying when we first started talking to about how, like, at the end of the day, whenever we're talking about any kind of um, haunting, it all comes back to it was once a person and respecting that and then like revisiting that history and actually like doing it in a way that feels honorable, I think is really important. Most definitely. So, okay, kind of within the same vein here about Jim Williams, who was the preservationist. He was also an antiques dealer. And a question that we've been asking people, because I'm just fascinated by this as someone who writes about design, do you think that um, antiques and vintage items and collecting stuff of that nature, they can be haunted themselves? That could be true. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I believe so. Because, I mean, there's a lot of things that you be like, yo, if somebody's really attached to this piece, this article, they might be able to transfer, like, you know, energy in there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Maybe one day somebody might get my clippers and just feel like they could fade it even better. You know what I'm saying? Because my energy has been placed in them so much. And I actually think that that might be the case. Like, I've, you, I've, cut, I've cut with some these tools so much. I do think that sort of, like, past life can linger on and hopefully most of them are in a positive way but i'm sure there's like some some bad mirrors out there <laughs> a lot of bad mirrors there's a lot of bad people out there so uh-huh. and you guys have been to like a mix of homes that are like blatantly creepy or like you know not as as nicely restored versus also just like every day the average home you would never even know it's haunted like for you what's scarier i would definitely just say the 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 older decrepit you know spaces you know what i'm saying i don't get too scared when i see a microwave that's still blinking to you know midnight for the last five hours because you know they haven't reset their clock but when there's a spot where you know people have kind of even come you know because they see that it's an old decrepit place people be coming in doing rituals different things of that nature there's always some type some type of demonic signs in that in those spaces you know it's just always a, a non-welcoming space it's not like there's if they are preserved, you know, when they're preserved, they're kind of whitewashed, you know, in the sense where you're not going to really know what what kind of like real energy was in there. You know what I'm saying? Like what kind of like, like you said, when we go to these to these houses in Savannah, you know, like these are built on like destruction. You know what I'm saying? It's like worse than drug money. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It was blood money. So, you know, just to have those type of like that type of energy in there, it's just oof. Yeah, it's it comes from like there's a lot of pain, I think, in there that's but that needs to be addressed because as long as you just like don't address something that doesn't make it go away but um, then you know how these pieces look i mean what's the point in addressing it so that you don't have the attraction no more now you're just a real museum you know yeah what I'm well yeah and then that comes back to the ethics of like the money making again right yeah mm-hmm. 
Because it is a business now. And that's the crazy thing about it. I've seen people who buy these places now and just like just leave them the way they are because they know that there's a story behind it and they know that they have, you know, whomever coming through to do a tour. So, yeah, totally agreed. So have you guys run into anybody who is able to kind of like successfully cohabitate with a ghost in their house? I mean, they're in a lease. So they all figure it out sooner or later. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, Ronald, turn that light off when you're done. Yeah. Or, you know, all this type of stuff. But, you know, sometimes they'll be scared. But then most of them are just like, they're more so relieved that they know that they, it's confirmed that they knew that there was something in their house versus them being like, oh, freaked out now. I was just going to ask about like, what what's the scariest experience you've had in an overnight? Because that's to me is like, you guys sleep in those places. I would probably have to dip out at that point. <laughs> um, did you ever have any like overnights where you're like, I'm not sleeping at all in here? Um, this one house in, in Michigan where like this, this mirror broke down and like actually cut the young lady's leg and she actually had to go to the hospital, almost died. And uh, still lived in the house afterwards and just always felt uncomfortable, but was always in the mindset of, I don't, she may feel crazy because she couldn't tell nobody. Like, you know, I think it's a ghost that just tried to kill me. You know what I'm saying? Like, that doesn't, you can't put that on a hospital report, you know, cause of injury. Uh, ghost pushing a, a mirror on my leg, you know, is not one. So I think that when we got to these haunted house guests uh, season, we were able to make the person feel like, okay, it's confirmation that I'm not crazy. So they're able to like really actually take control more because if you feel like you don't know what's happening, you know, you, you, you feel like you don't know what's happening. You don't know how to attack anything, but once you have a sense of what's going on, you're able to kind of make a plan of attack. One question I had about ghost brothers, has anything ever happened during filming, but like while the cameras were off that you guys wish you caught? There's so many, yes, there's so many things, especially when we were in Jamaica, we was in white, uh, Rose Hall. And uh, just the energy of Rose Hall, like we said, uh, it was a plantation. So we had a different energy. The spirit that was kind of like at question was uh, the the white witch of Rose Hall is what they called her. She would try to sleep with her, uh, her indigenous servants, you know what I'm saying? And her, uh, her people and, uh, and, and then kill them afterwards. Ugh, that is truly awful. So, you know, it was just like a lot of weird energy things going on. A lot of things like, even our cameramen were always turning around like, did you feel that? Did you see that? So, I mean, it was a lot of, our, our first two seasons of Ghost Brothers was probably like one of the most, everybody turned around, hey, dog, this is not safe. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So you guys are really spiritual. And I think in, you know, previous interviews, you've mentioned that like maybe um, religion had influenced you kind of like early on in, in you know, childhood to not necessarily believe in ghosts or the paranormal. So how do you think you've kind of like come to terms with that, like the crossroads between religion and spirituality and the paranormal? I think I've always believed in ghosts. That's why we didn't mess with spirits. And I think that's how my community is. You don't want to have to stress about the afterlife when you have so much life to live. So why would I even research that? Most people would say too. You know, so that's just pretty much where, I mean, I think that it's allowed me to be more spiritual, like I said, in touch with what I want to create on earth and know that like, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen after. So before we hop, what's next for Ghost Brothers? Is there anything you can tell fans or are you guys working on anything right now? So what's next is we have uh, Hunt, we have Fright Club coming back out. Uh, okay. we, we're going to be pretty soon with that. Then we also have um, Ghost Brothers Lights Out. This is going to probably come back out beginning, beginning of the top of the year. We're going to probably start investigating then. Uh, we're also selling an NFT at my art gallery, um, the first of its kind to sell a whole uh, art gallery as well as a barbershop as an NFT. Uh, we have an auction coming up. I have uh, this thing called the Barberstar Summit. We also have, with Ghost Brothers, we have uh, a dope thing called Straight Ghosts and Weekend where we actually all get together in Savannah. You get to, you know, hunt with us. Uh, so we just have a good time, man. It's going to be, um, you know, the world's kind of opening back up. So we're just really, you know, here to kind of put our stamp back on that thing. It was so great talking Thanks with you. Me. I feel like I learned a lot. So I really appreciate you taking Thank the time. You that was 
An absolute delight. Yeah, he was so fun to talk to. I lost track of time. You can see that's like why he's good at going into these places and making families feel comfortable in their own home again, you know? Yeah. Well, I also just loved what he said about um, even if you can't get rid of their ghosts, just like giving them the opportunity to say out loud, I think there's something in my house. I thought it was really crazy that Marcus said that one of the most common reasons for a haunting that they've encountered is like, toxic relationships or like just a relationship oh, on yeah. sour. How weird. I know. I know. Like, well, because it was like basically he was explaining what happened at Mercer House. We obviously, we don't have full answers on like the dynamic in that relationship, but somebody was hurt, romantically yeah. speaking. Like if it was toxic in life, it was probably toxic in death. To what Valerie was saying, like you just have to resolve it no one's right, no one's wrong. When you think about people who they don't want to talk about it and they think it's going to go away and then eventually it shows up in some other way, whether it's like a bad habit you develop to cope or you can't be in relationships because you don't deal with what happened in your last one, you've got to work through it and learn from it. You know, I mean, it's the same with history. What to me is the most interesting thing is like the way that these stories become shaped and then passed down like has so much to do with where they are. And this one, of course, being like, kind of, you know, a Southern Gothic and also in Savannah shapes the tone of the story and all of the stuff about the antiques. Exactly. The same is true for how the ghost stories about the Villisca house reflected the local landscape, culture, history, et cetera, there. And then the Jean Harlow house is a cautionary tale about the dark sides of fame and fortune, that quintessential Hollywood warning that not all that glitters is gold, which a storyline which has, you know, been true to the California dream and the corresponding nightmare since the gold rush. But even more, it's like homes are haunted by their inhabitants, dead, alive. And I think it just kind of all comes back to the, the idea that it's like, it's all about history and I think honoring it in a way. And just because it might not be like a residual haunting or whatever you want to call it, it's still a, a piece of its um, of its identity, you know? Yeah, I feel like we're aligned that the house doesn't have necessarily residual hauntings, but it has an energy that's... Yeah very distinguishable. Another person died here in the same room that the person was shot. And then mm -hmm. the little boy who fell off the roof, like even without all of that, it's still, you have a house full of antiques, but also the more stuff in your house, the more places for people to hide. Okay. So it's also the more little things you have <laughs> that'll cast like weird shadows, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what? Sometimes you see a shadow on the wall, but it's like from this weird shaped vase or whatever. And so then the shadow looks like a person. I think the more you have in your house. It's clutter. Clutter. It's kind of scary in more ways than one. Yeah. Except for like I'm a maximalist. Speaking of maximalist, I think maximalist is a word that you could use to describe next week's house. Okay. Well, yeah. On that note, let's close the chapter in Savannah. And I know that you can't tell me where it is, but I, that narrows it down and maximalist, I guessed. I mean, I don't know. Could, are you going to my apartment? LOL. No. Oh, my last clue will just be like, it makes a lot of sense to go here. So close to Halloween. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Okay. I'll it's not Salem it. though. Okay. So anybody who's going to try to to guess Salem in the Apple podcast reviews, don't bother, but do leave us a review. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark House. If you're looking for even more spooky stories, head to housebeautiful.com slash darkhouse to check out some of our favorites. Or if you're totally freaked out and need a distraction, you can do what I do and look at pretty interiors to calm down. To unlock all of our exclusive home tours and get the magazine delivered right to your door, sign up for our membership program at housebeautiful.com slash join now.